Hello and welcome to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And in today's episode, we are going all zen with Gary Goro, the master of meditation. He has over 15 years experience in the field, earning him the reputation as one of the world's foremost meditation teachers. As a Vedic meditation expert, he has taught stars and celebrities all over the world, including myself, on the mantras and the process of learning how to become deep and zen. So for those of you who'd like to learn more about meditation, more about mindfulness and the process and the benefits, this is going to be your Zen opportunity. Listen up, it's time to get Zen. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a real honour and a real privilege. Gary Goro, welcome to the podcast, mate. Oh, thanks, mate. Now, I know you're a very humble dude, so I can already see you blushing through your incredibly tanned skin. <laughs> uh, look, I, I feel like I owe a lot to you for a whole range of reasons. Uh, you know, meditation has played a huge role in my life for a very long time. Uh, meditation has been a really interesting journey for me. And I think a lot of people can probably relate. They have this love-hate relationship with it. Most people try it and they go, well, it's just not for me for whatever reason. You know, I was very lucky. I was brought up in a very spiritual home, very, you know, a home with a mum who was very open to, to energies, you know, taught Reiki at the age mm-hmm. of three and four or taught how to use my hands to heal at the age of three and four. Uh, and so for me, meditation was almost like something that was a, it was a, an unstructured practice that we learned, and, but I never really learned how to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I actually uh, discovered um, in my early, mid-20s, I discovered v- Vipassana. And Vipassana for me was, it reminded me of my full contact fighting days. Like it was hardcore. And for those people <laughs> playing at home, like this style of meditation, I would go away and I did this seven times for, they say it's a 10-day retreat. But when you look at the dates, when you look at the amount of time, it's actually closer to 11, let's be honest. Uh, and, um, you know, you medit- you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning with a gong, you know, you start meditating, you, know, you meditate, you know, you have breaks throughout the day, you're only eating two vegan meals a day and then, you, you know, you t- typically finish up with meditation discourse at 9.30 at night and you're doing that for 10 days, uh, 11. But what was really interesting about that is, you know, you're taking a vow of silence, you know, you can't look at anyone for the entire time. They segregate the men and the women so you really are with yourself. Um, and for me it was an incredibly transformational journey but when I came back to the real world, you know, the practice was hour in the morning, hour in the afternoon. I found it so difficult to maintain because, you know, entrepreneur, busy guy, always got the excuse, right? But then all of a sudden, you know, I was introduced to yourself through, you know, a good friend called Matt Burke. Uh, and um, he said, look, you need to try Vedic meditation. You know, Vedic meditation, for some people, they may be, it's synonymous with, uh, with transcendental meditation. Similarities are there, but they are different. Um, and then you, you inducted me into the Meditation Hall of Fame, I call it. Um, actually, that isn't really true but um you inducted me into the vedic meditation and whereby you taught me this practice that i could use 22 minutes or 20 minutes in the morning 20 minutes in the afternoon and the impacts were incredible like uh, and again i'm going to call it timing because i'm not going to say that i didn't get a lot from vipassana i got an enormous amount but it was almost like the moment you introduced me to vedic it was like all of a sudden something was unlocked something was unleashed and all of a sudden the, this discipline that became very challenging all of a sudden became very easy. Is that your experience when, you, when you're teaching Vedic? That was my personal experience as well because I was dabbling in a lot of different spiritual crafts and I used to, I was firstly drawn to doing yoga, the yoga asana, and then at the end of the class there would be this typical sort of meditation of some kind. Is that like yoga but just said the right way? Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yoga's... Yoga. Yeah. It's Indian for your good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so anyway, at the end of the class, there would ultimately be like a guided meditation of some kind. Yeah, right. Or your own personal meditation. And you're given certain cues on how to do it. And I just found that torturous. So much so where I would just sort of lie down and just 
go elsewhere. I wouldn't even... Or fall asleep. Yeah. I wouldn't even bother trying to attempt to do it because I was like, my mind just can't do this. And so many years passed and then like you, I found this practice and then I just found that I mastered it so quickly because the technique is so elegant, so refined, so sophisticated yet simple that it just works and it works universally. So people that say they can't do it, who may have done it, because I just met with a guy, one of my clients yesterday and he's like, this is so hard, I've just got to go back to guided stuff. And as it turned out, he was just doing the practice incorrectly. So there is a subtle art to it. Yeah, right. But most people live their lives with a goal in mind. You know, you kind of have all these KPIs and all these things you need to achieve and a long to-do list and every task is performed with the idea that I want this done and this result. Whereas when you meditate, it's process-oriented. So people who are like yourself, um, like very busy, determined, focused and use a lot of their personal uh, mental and physical energy to get stuff done, if they bring that same approach to the meditation, it's just going to turn it to ruin. (laughs) (laughs) So what works in one place will actually not work in another. So it's learning to transition and become more renaissance and being able to be really active, you know, uh, giving everything you have to something, then meditation is like complete surrender. So I think Vipassana is a very sort of focused, effort-based where you have to be very diligent. Mm. Whereas VM, it's like, well, let the mantra and the nature of your mind and nervous system just carry on, carry on and do the work for you. You don't have to like be implementing it and um, coercing your system into a meditative state. It'll just drop if you do it properly. Is this one of the challenges that a lot of people have with meditation? Because, you know, I talk about meditation, you know, a lot in my videos. I talk about it a lot mm. from stage. Uh, and the common, you know, response I get from people who've tried it, go, look, I tried it, it just didn't work for me. And I said, well, well why is that? And I said, well, I just found it very difficult. You know, my mind wanders. And <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like there's this irony because, you know, it's almost like saying to someone, oh, you know, uh, have you thought about losing weight? Yeah, I tried that. I went to the gym, but I lifted a weight. And after like six or seven, you know, lifts, it started to really hurt. And it just, <laughs> just so I put the weight down and I left. Mm. So is it much the same with meditation? Like, do, do, do we really need to understand at first, it is going to be like going to the gym. It is going to be a little bit more difficult. There are going to be some challenges. But is meditation, is the whole point of meditation the fact that your mind will get distracted? Yeah, it depends very much on different practices and techniques. So I can only really speak as an expert from the tradition from which I come. So with Vedic meditation, it's understood that the nature of the mind is it is this sort of roving, incessantly active beast. And so the whole purpose of meditating is to bring the mind into contact with that underlying field of being, Mm. you know, which is the source of thought or the source of mind. So it's the mantra which helps to lead the mind to that place. But in the process of the mind diving inward towards that field, it naturally deviates and drifts and it'll move into mind stuff and it'll start thinking about the emo you didn't do and the person that you had an altercation with and the parking ticket you got and how it's, you know, such a nice day and whatever it may be, your mind just will wander. Yeah. And so if people think that wandering is a crime, then they need to completely redefine what meditation actually is. Yeah, right. So it's a movement into a state, a different neurophysiological state and within that neurophysiological state, your mind can move. You can have fluctuating movement and thought coming and going. But somehow we've developed this idea as a, as a people, as a collective consciousness, that meditation is exclusive of thought. Mm. And if you're having thoughts, then you're not doing it. Yeah, and if right. you've got a busy mind, then you may as well just chuck it in. Whereas on a physiological level, when your mind and body go into a deep meditative state, your body starts releasing stress. It's just it's natural time to decompress and discharge all the crap that it's hold, holding on to. So with that discharge comes all this fluctuation neurologically. So your mind moves 
So a busy mind isn't necessarily a sign you're failing. It's a sign that your body's decompressing and releasing loads of stress, which is a positive thing. Mm. But having said that, if someone just sort of sits there and closes their eyes and they're going to have a mind that's racing like it normally is. But the difference is with VM, the mantra leads you into a meditative state. So the amount of rest your physical body is obtaining is, is very profound. And then within that, healing happens. So there'll be part of the meditation that feels busy and there'll be a deeper part of you that feels completely calm. So I think it's important for, for people to understand there are different types of meditation. You know, yeah. we're referring to a mantra meditation. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people also refer to mindfulness meditation. Yeah. Um, is this kind of like martial arts? There are 52 different types yeah. of meditation. Or can we categorize meditation into a couple of really easy categories? Yeah, two easy categories. You could just say what you said that there are, it seems like there are even emerging forms of meditation almost by the week as new apps and different things yeah. start to emerge and different yoga teachers create their own hybrids and whatnot. But you could say there are concentrative practices. And there are contemplative practices. They're the two general categories so of meditation. Concentrative? Yeah, which is a Vipassana style. Yeah, so you where you're using focus, you're using mental effort to really sustain a state of being centered or present, whatever it may be. And Vipassana, as I understand, is often working with f- subtle physical sensations in yeah, the breath. Sensation. Yeah. Sensation. So, you know, you're attuning your attention and kind of restraining it in some ways. That's a concentrative method. A contemplative method is where you use more of your creative, imaginative mind where you think of your relationship with the cosmos, the oneness of God, you know, your individual being melting into the ocean of being, whatever it is, you know, you can contemplate anything. So it's a different type of style, whereas Vedic meditation is an effortless form. Mm. That would be the difference. So you could say there's three categories. There's a Techniques which are completely effortless and are using the natural predisposition of the mind and the nervous system and just um, allowing that to do the work, which is what VM does. Yeah, right. Which is founded on the understanding that the nature of your mind is that it will always gravitate towards something which is more rich, more profound, more fulfilling. People, when they turn on television, they always go to the thing they're going to like the most. Or if they're, you know looking through a magazine in a news agency, they're always going to go to the thing which is most enjoyable for them. So it's a default setting of your mind which will always go to the thing that's better. And so if you give the mind the option just to sit around in rubbishy thoughts or to experience the bliss of transcendence, you'll go, give me that. So the mantra is what allows the mind to transcend. Yeah. Transcend means to go beyond. Okay. So you're going beyond just your normal sort of superficial plane of mind into this more holistic and profound and settled state of awareness. So in your perspective, from where you're sitting, what's the difference between mindfulness and mm-hmm. meditation? My personal view on it. Because it's like it's it, there's like a full dictionary of different perspectives. Exactly. Elements. And yeah. because mindfulness is a Western-created mm. concept, it was never called that by the Buddhists. And traditionally there's no reference to that term at all. So a Western woman who'd studied Buddhism came up with the term. And it wasn't that long ago. It was only like a, you know four or five decades ago or something. And for me, what mindfulness is, is a waking state practice. Eyes open, mm. here we are. Yep. I'm mindful of you and the light. A process meditation of sorts. Yeah, yep. it's where you're engaging what meditation has been able to create within your mind and within your neurology. You're bringing that to bear on your waking state. So I would say a meditative practice is eyes closed, going deep within oneself. If it's not that, in my view, it's not meditation. So meditation is simply diving deep within oneself, contacting the subtlest level of their being ultimately. 
And then a waking state um, mindfulness practice is where you use that clear awareness and you learn to develop and cultivate it throughout your waking life. Because mm. meditation shouldn't be there's this state you go into and it's like, wow, and then your life's no different. So I believe, and this is what I have did when I you know, was working with the team at Google, is they data mindfulness practice, but it was, it was ineffective. I have to choose my words carefully there. <laughs> <laughs> Highly ineffective. Yeah. So then someone that I'd trained there contacted me and said, look, we've got terrible rates of retention, enormous amount of stress, um, dissatisfaction within, you know, our, our workers and a multitude of other problems, yet they've got all the, all the glitz and glamour and everything to remedy it but it wasn't working. Mm. And said, can you do something? I said, sure. And so I ran a new program and what I got them to do first was learn to transcend. Mm get them to go beyond their mind, change the state of their nervous system, create new neural networks, and then after that it's very easy to be mindful. But if you have this very disorderly mind that's kind of got lots of static and you say to that person, just be present or just be grateful, it's really difficult because mm. how do you tell a drunk person to be sober? <laughs> so when you look at someone who's got this busy, stressed-out mind, it's the same thing, trying to command you to be present and be fully here but it's like telling, you know, a belligerent drunk just to like drive straight. It, it's not possible. So I believe meditation is the foundation for mindfulness. Yeah. And it is. You look traditionally, if you be back, yeah. it would be, you know, the Buddha teaching, you know, enter this state of samadhi, go into that internal state of, you know, pure awareness. And then from there you end up developing it. So I think mindfulness without that is such hard work. Yeah. Or it's just having a small effect. You know, it'll give you like a, it'll give you some effect, but it'll just be marginal. And it yeah. won't be deeply embedded into. And this is just me, you know. John Cabot's well, in, and all those guys will say otherwise. Everyone's got a different perspective, but yeah. you know, I've I've had discussions with people say, "Well, you know, I can I I'm, I can meditate while I'm washing the dishes. Oh, I yeah. can meditate while I'm running." I go, "Well, actually, that's you know, that's closer towards mindfulness. You know, mm. we're becoming aware, or you're focusing on something. You know, yeah. in a in a waking state." But it's interesting, like I know for me, my practice, um, and I'm so in love with, with mm. um, Vedic meditation. You know, I know I, I went away from my practice for a little while. Mm. I came back in the last year when I was going through my separation with my wife and I've, you know, I've continued very strongly. Um, but what's interesting for me is there are certain sensations that I feel in my body <laughs> when I am meditating, especially in my arms and in my hands, yeah. uh, that when I do my coming out of my mantra mm -hmm. that I just focus on. And what's interesting is I use that to stay mindful throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So throughout the day whenever yeah. I'm feeling a little bit worked up, I just tune in and I can literally, and I don't know if this is weird, maybe I'm having a stroke, but I, I literally feel from mm -hmm. here to the tips of my fingers, whenever I tune in, it's just constantly tingling. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that comes from the Vipassana, which is you know very much about tuning into sensation from the top of your head, you know, you're working through all the way down to the tips of every finger. And I remember at the end of my um, my um, Vipassana meditations, I'd be able to literally go to any point on my body, mm. whether it be the base of my heel or the core yeah. of my heel or behind my ear, and I can go, wow, I can actually feel that part of my body because mm. we become so attuned, which has really helped me you know, in my everyday life. But let's actually look at the origins. Like what mm. are the origins of meditation? Like, where does it come from? And is there, any, is there a little bit of um, contention around that? Well, before we go to that, I just feel I would like to say that I find within, you know, spiritual circles or even within the meditative circles, there can be this them and, them and us type <laughs> thing that starts to develop. And I would just like to say that I think meditation itself is, is a beautiful thing and mm. provided people are doing something, then I bow to them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, find your ways, you know, look at different things, be experimental. Don't think there's only one way. We're all wired in a particular way and some people just prefer, you know, 
visualization exercises or a guided app. Um, So, you know, I don't want to be getting hate mail and all this sort of stuff. but it's interesting. And again, I think we should be open to different perspectives and, you know, the the fact that perhaps not one size fits all. Like for me, the idea of a guided meditation or an app, um, I literally, my head just goes, no, 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 no. And I turn Mm. it off, I want peace. It's introductory for me. Like I think there are great place for people to begin yes but if you were to stay in such a place i i think it would be a mistake what's a good app that you've seen around there you know i've heard people talk about headspace uh, but have you got any that you would recommend as a good starting point for some people probably that one to yeah. be honest and i've not even touched headspace but yeah. enough people have told me about yeah, it and exactly i've taught a lot same. of people who have done it yeah so i think it must be a really good grounding and i mean they're turning over like at over a hundred million dollars a year <laughs> yeah my so it's the and, and growing monthly. I think it was yeah, at right. the time it was ten to fifteen percent per 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 year or per annum per, yeah, per month. It's interesting. Meditation is becoming a huge business. Well, it's actually been a business for some time, especially mm. when you look at uh, transcendental meditation. They yeah. have a very strong commercial model uh, that they protect, you know, litigiously in a very very yeah. strong way, um, which you know, which is of course something all brands mm. should do. Uh, as long as it's in line with the, yeah, the, the core exactly. of the origin of the brand. And I think you know what Andy Puttikam did. He got the sanction of the Dalai Lama to, to give these teachings, to share those teachings, um, which if it's come from that place, I think, great, you know, you've, you've absolutely got approval. So the thing for me is I understand that where the, and this gets to your question, I think we have to honour the source. Yes. And I think as society becomes more globalised and we become more um, impatient with information there becomes this desire for people to just to do something in as short a time as possible and like become masters at it and i noticed the microwave mindset yeah done in 60 seconds yeah yeah yeah, exactly so i think like the standards are dropping for teachers Mm. dramatically like to be a yoga teacher once upon a time you had to like work your butt off and serve that master for many many years live with them Same with martial arts yeah it's become very commercial yeah and it's and it's really that catch twenty two because someone owns a dojo and they need to pay their rent and feed their family and pay their mortgages and they want to teach students, but the students are saying we don't want to learn like that anymore. So what's happened across the board pretty much is stu- teachers are catering to the needs of their students, not the other way around. Yeah. So what I love within the Vedic tradition, it was the opposite. You had to earn the favor of the guru. You had to learn to serve. You had to show your deep respect and your deservability for the practice, and you had to earn that. And for me, that's how I learned. Like mm. it wasn't like, oh, I just want it like this, teach me this. Or I had to serve my guru and was like totally devoted. And that's why I found I accelerated so quickly. And now I notice people like want it on their terms and I think they're doing themselves an injustice. So what I see is happening more and more is um, the power is going into the student's hands and unfortunately there's less and less reverence for the guru now because there's so many options. Like I had classic example this person said oh, i wanted to teach training with you i'm like, okay no worries let's look into that and then she looked at the program and said, oh, no i don't like i'm gonna go with this person it's a bit more convenient <laughs> just like well thank you i'm glad you glad thank you're not you on my program yeah early in because i'm so glad i didn't give my time to yeah just and it's that like what do you want to do do yeah. you want like just to shave a few months off as opposed to like setting yourself up for a lifetime yeah so i think you really got to understand like the, the history of these practices to really appreciate them. Mm. Like the, this comes from a very ancient lineage, more than 5,000 years old. Think of the most enlightened people that walk the planet. They're in complete union with the divine. These are some of the masters that cognize a lot of the Vedic wisdom. Um, Vyasa, for example, was one of the 
masters of our tradition. He uh, wrote the Bhagavad Gita, well, of which, you know, the central chapters, that is the central chapters of the, the Mahabharata. Um, and he was one of the most prolific authors in human history. <laughs> and, you know, the, he, he's just one of many of these highly esteemed people who spent so much of their lifetime and their energy focusing in on the nature of consciousness and how you can accelerate as a human's development. And so there's so much shakti in what we call a parampara. There's so much power mm. in a guru-shisha, like a teacher-student lineage. So anytime you come to learn this practice, as you would know, there's like a little ceremony that we do mm. which invokes the history. Yeah. It invokes all of the cognitions of the masters and that story and it kind of en- enlivens it in that moment. And there is something and we're talking off air just slightly about this, that within that exchange, in that moment between the teacher and student, when that ceremony has been performed, something happens. Mm. It's magical. It's very palpable. You know, I feel it every time. And then the mantra is given, you know, with the approval of those masters, and then it really takes effect on the on the body and the brain and people are away. So, you know, there's something to be said for tradition, ceremony certain protocol and ways of things being done yeah i agree but i just feel like more and more something's being lost yeah something's being lost lost in you know not just in in meditation because i think meditation and martial arts they've been intrinsically linked for thousands Mm. of years um but i think tradition has been lost especially when it comes to family i think tradition has been lost when it comes to you know just the sanctity of even just things like marriage and and what it means to be a father or a mother or a brother or a sister yeah but look we are where we are and the great thing is is we've never had access to more information than we have today and what was really profound for me is I still remember um, when I was looking to come and work with you after Maddie had suggested you to me and I started watching some videos on what actually happens to the brain mm. when people start to meditate. And I found this fascinating because at this mm. point, you know, I'd been, um, I'd had my stroke, you know, I, uh, we discovered I got, I'd had two other brain injuries. So, you know, I've got three brain injuries. I've been, you know, been mm. knocked around the skull a few too many times. And so for me, I was like, wow, you know, I'm really interested. So, but perhaps someone who's – because I think most people who've done some form of meditation, they've experienced some benefits, yeah. but they perhaps don't understand the you know the, what's happening at a neurological level. Yeah. They perhaps don't understand what's happening at a biological level mm-hmm. uh, and in some cases also you know at a, at a spiritual level, which we can, we'll move on to yeah. as well. But let's start with the brain. Let's start with the brain. We'll talk about the body and we'll talk about the heart as mm-hmm. well. What happens to the brain when we actually start to get into a meditative state? Well, I, when I first started tapping into all the scientific research and I really found that profound and fascinating oh, and that was something that I thought, wow, this, this validates the whole thing for me. And then later on I just accepted, yeah, it's doing something positive for the brain and then I moved on. Yeah. So I haven't returned too much to the science but I've noticed it's sort of um, – But it's good for the Western mind, yeah, right? Because exactly. some people need something we to love hang science. on to. Yeah. yeah, exactly, that will then throw them in exactly like you did. You got onto the science – that developed a level of belief and faith yeah. that enabled you to then throw yourself into and then, you know, essentially not blindly but then surrender yeah. the requirement for the science to back up yeah. your experience. So, yeah, the brain is different according to different meditation practices. The signatures are different. Is that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what happens in Vedic meditation, for example, obviously there's the, the dialing down of the limbic response. So as you, I've heard you talk about, you know, the amygdala and, yeah. the, you know, the fear centres that begins to uh, downregulate and then you find other parts of the brain upregulating. So there's this calming of the brain and there's this coherent pattern that begins to be demonstrated in the brain, which is probably the most fascinating thing that I've seen about it besides this other one I'll mention in a sec. So if you 
if we look at like what happens inside a person when they're meditating, it's so hard to determine it through science because mm. you can't just do a survey and say, well, give, tell us what happened. Yeah. So one of the ways was they mapped the brain. And the, the use of fMRIs. Like yeah, functional MRIs, yeah, and EEGs. The EEG was the sort of classic way it was done yep. where they would put electrodes all over the brain and then each electrode would be measuring the faint electrical impulses coming out of the brain and then that would be translated into a wave function. Yep. And so when you look at what happens in the waking state brain, someone's brain looks quite scattered and disorderly. There's a real failure of, to, to cohere within the brain. But the moment that person starts their mantra, within minutes they've gone into this coherent state. So literally all the different parts of the brain and mind are functioning as one sort of synergistic unit. The best analogy is like a, an orchestra where there's no conductor and then everyone's sort of playing in different sort of parts of the score and it's just like this cacophonous so the sound. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone's like tuning in yeah, and then all of a sudden the conductor gets up there and they go knock, knock, knock. Yeah. And then the symphony comes out. Exactly. So he waves the baton and then everyone's playing this beautiful melody. And that's very much analogous to what's going on inside the brain. So prior to, to meditation and there's disorder and within meditation itself there's this orderly pattern that plays out. And does that then start to become more of a, instead of a, a practice-based observation, more of a like an actual like awakening-based observation? Like does the brain slowly start to, start to adapt? Yeah, yeah. And, and function more like that normally. Yeah, you see that there is definitely like the meditation itself is a rehearsal for enlightenment. So you're setting up this <laughs> condition within the brain that then becomes embedded and you're laying down all this new neural circuitry and the architecture's changing. So then you find the meditation has prepared you to function in your waking state in this elevated space. And the thing that one of the things that fascinated me most about this practice was they did one study where they took people that had prefrontal cortex damage and these included alcoholics, drug addicts, highly stressed out professionals and then Sure enough, under a uh, scan, it showed like these functional lesions in the brain, mm-hmm. parts where the neurons weren't firing. Mm-hmm. So under a scan, it just looks like a grey, dead area. Yep. And then they learned to meditate, these subjects, and then they measured their brains three months later and all the lesions had dis- disappeared. So, I mean, all this blood was flowing, the neurons were firing again. Mm. And so the brain can repair itself. And this was quite – this wasn't common knowledge back in the day when I learned because we weren't as uh, acutely aware of the principle of neuroplasticity yeah. back then. But now neuroscience is saying like probably the best thing you can do is meditate. Mm. Second running is learning a a new language, you know, to really stretch the brain and to get it function more optimally. Yeah, right. Yeah. New language. Yeah. So brain, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely changing the brain. And when you're meditating you can, like, I mean, I can feel the chemistry changing Mm. and moving through my bloodstream physiologically. It's just like someone presses a new button it's like... Because my experience, um, you know, especially since having a couple of brain injuries, when I started doing the the mantra-based meditation and, and over time, uh, I started to discover, I was like, wow, holy crap, my memory is getting really sharp. Mm. Uh, holy crap, I'm starting to not only remember things, but I'm able in some cases to be able to remember three and four trains of thought simultaneously. And most oh, people, wow. and I know for myself prior, I was barely able to hang on to one. Yeah. You know, I, I was very, you know, I was very famous for, you know, forgetting what I was saying halfway through the conversation. But when I got to the point where I was meditating, you know, on a, on a daily basis, my twice a day, mm. after about 12 months, I was literally going, you know, I could be standing on stage and I'd be speaking about one subject or about a particular thread of a topic. And then I'd be thinking in, in advance while I'm speaking, okay, I then need to go off on here, then I need to go on here, and then I need to there, and then I need to bring them all back together. 
And I still remember I was actually in the Western Hotel. Uh, I was delivering a presentation and I was literally speaking. And the best part was I wasn't thinking. It was just coming through me. It was coming yeah. uh, fr- through me, not from me. Um, and I just remember b- being in awe, not of myself, but of what was actually happening. And I wasn't sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm, I've mastered this. I was just like, wow, this is just – and the word that came to me was, wow, this is divine. Yeah. Like this is divine. I'm literally able to manage so many different things. So what is it that's happening to the brain that increases our ability to remember things? It increases the ability for the brain to function. Um, and, and also what, with what you're saying, it increases the abilities, the brain's ability to be able to downregulate and deal with mm. you know, stress that in most cases can create brain damage. Mm. Yeah, stress really shuts off the neocortex, yeah. which is the CEO of the brain. Yeah. And so when we're meditating, we're turning on those centers. So it's just really encouraging your system to begin to rebalance, to go into homeostasis, but then it's doing more than that. You know, it's livening different parts of the brain which typically are dormant or, you know, because one of the ways to think about it is there's this upregulation and downregulation. So in a state of stress, those things which are most vital for our creativity, our common sense, our ingenuity, etc., these all get dialed down mm. and the parts of your brain which are there to protect you and keep you safe, etc., uh, etc., et they begin to upregulate. So you notice there's like one is sacrificed for the other. And Emotions are high, intelligence is low. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So a lot of the time when you look at the state people operate in, it's quite sad, mm. you know, there's, there's stress. You know, mm. there's stress and fear and worry. Chronic. and Yeah, and there's this you know, incessant sort of spiralling within there in the dialogue which is telling them need to do this, got to do that and they're kind of preempting or trying to forecast what's going to happen. So that inner dialogue is causing the brain to fire in a particular pattern and as we know that whatever we think, the brain will shape itself for that experience and the more the mind, the brain shapes itself, it becomes fixed in that position which then causes like-minded thinking patterns to become entrenched within that person's mind form. So it becomes like this terrible scenario where you can't escape your own thought patterns anymore. They're so deeply ingrained. And it's partly to do with the neural architecture and it's also got to do with the habitual nature or what the mind's been feeding on. Mm -hmm. Like they're both reinforcing one another. It's Mm -hmm. like does the mind change the brain or does the brain dictate the mind? It's both. You can come at it either way you want. So what meditation is essentially doing is evoking a fourth state of consciousness within a human being. So it's going from waking, sleeping and dreaming into Turiya, which is a Sanskrit word for fourth. So they knew that a human being had the capacity to experience a state which transcended those three common states, Mm. waking, sleeping and dreaming. And just look at those three states, how critical they are. If we miss one or one is compromised, we're toast, right? Mm. You you lose the, the sleep state when you have kids. It's, you know, it's kind of carved up into pieces and... And, you know, it's you don't function well. You're moody, you can't remember things so well, you're not mentally as sharp and you're in this sort of brain fog for a lot of the day and think, well, what happened? Oh, I just didn't get a sufficient amount of sleep that my nervous system requires. And if you deprive someone of dreaming, they start to hallucinate mm. in their waking state. You deprive someone of waking, they're just basically in a coma and their body can only stay alive for so long until their muscles atrophy. So... My big thing is that human beings are dependent on a fourth state also. We're dependent on a fourth state to thrive and we don't see many people thriving. Mm. And those that are, they're typically meditating and giving their mind, their brain, their whole nervous system access to this sacred state. And it was a state which was very much part of the fabric of ancient life. But because of the material nature of our 
our trajectory as a as a global culture mm. has become about outward sort of gratification and acquisition rather than acquisition of the internal within us. So it's very much I think what meditation is doing is it's just it's normalizing the system but it's also evoking this greater potentiality within the system. And I'm not a neuroscientist so I can't really give too much sort of technical speak on but i think anyone who's had a level of practice would uh it's undeniable yeah. the, the effects on the brain but i'm also uh, curious of the effects on the biology like the physiology mm. and, and mm. also maybe if you want to talk to any information you've got around the heart as well yeah. and maybe the heart brain connection mm. so you know it's becoming you know something that's uh being referred to as you know, an anti-aging tool, mm. and it's so interesting yeah. now. Like the, the the my and I say this to everyone. My top, my num my top two performance tools, mm. my top two two anti-aging tools. Uh, number one is meditation, and mm. the other one is fasting, mm. uh, or intermittent fasting and yeah. fasting. No bo no Botox required, no surgery <laughs> yeah. required. Um, but it really does have profound effects on our biology and our physiology. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Like what actually happens? To, the brain starts to downregulate. It starts to. Yeah. Uh, become a lot more coherent. It starts mm -hmm. to communicate with itself more efficiently, yeah. organize thoughts more efficiently, respond more efficiently to, mm -hmm. to stimulus rather than to you know pre-wired programming and patterns. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the what's the downward effect? What happens to yeah. the body then? So then the brain's also producing all this wonderful elevating um, chemistry, all these endorphins and bliss hormones start to cascade through the bloodstream. And so the brain's producing these while you're transcending. So then that goes into to nourish the body. So that promotes healing. And the physiological rest that comes through this downregulation or this settling of the brain leads the body into this state, which leads it into rest deeper than sleep. So if you can think of how critical sleep is and how much restoration happens during a nighttime of sleep, it's happening on a deeper level when we're meditating. So <clears throat> it's happening on a chemical level with all these beautiful hormones moving through our system, which are healing hormones. But also energetically there are things that are shifting and you would know this from martial arts and when you were saying Vipassana how you could attune energetically so you could be aware of your physical body but your energetic body. Because mm. we kind of just in a Western sense think there's only just this sort of material structure called our physical body which consists of blood, bone, tissue, etc. Whereas in... Vedic culture, Chinese traditions, etc. they understood that there's an energetic body and there's a pranic body. And when you're meditating, you're, there's so much happening, like you're enlivening your energetic body and you're working on the chakra systems themselves. You're not consciously doing that. But when someone meditates, there's this energy that begins to awaken at the base of the spine called kundalini, which then rises up through the spine, powers the different, spins the different chakras and then activates different parts of the brain and then this chakra center at the top called at the crown. So that's all happening. The, um, we know that the DNA is changing how it is behaving. Like there was one study that I looked uh, that I became aware of where they were sending intention to DNA and they would send like negative intentions to the strands of DNA and they would contract and become sort of rigid and more hard and bound up. And then when they transmitted love and compassion, the DNA strands elongated and become very fluid. So you think of that's like at the source of, you know, a cell and it's responding to intent. So how receptive are our bodies to what our minds are doing? Like they're so sensitive. You know, you just think of like falling over and grazing your knee on the concrete. You, hurt, you feel it, that pain in your body. And that was just a faint sort of idea that swept through your mind. 
So literally your whole body is just there saying, lead me, show me, enlighten me as to what reality is mm. because it doesn't know. It's only the brain and the sense organs that do that. So your body doesn't distinguish between a real or imagined thing. So when you're meditating, you're giving the body this deep peace mm. and it begins to kind of merge back into, you know, that that peaceful state of that it's at its source because everything comes from silence, everything comes from being. So we're helping to take the body back and that's why it doesn't rapidly age. When you get under stress, you're saying your body, you're in danger, protect, and it goes into this hypervigilant mode and fear and adrenaline and noradrenaline and all this stuff cascades through because it thinks I'm in danger. So that's what leads to the running down of the body. So meditation will turn off that response mm. for one. But the science also shows that someone who's been practising um, the study on transcendental meditation, what was done, uh, looked at subjects who'd been meditating for five years and they measured their biological age at the beginning of the study. Biological age and chronological age, there's a dis- distinction between the two. Yeah. And then they measured them five years later and they'd found they'd gone back 12 years. In five years. Biologically. So that aged five years but regressed biologically 12 years. Yeah. And if that and people who hadn't been went forward five or eight. Okay. So they should have been, say, started 25 and they should have been 35 <laughs> years later. They Dude, were you need to open an anti-aging clinic. <laughs> like you do. No, you should be calling it anti-aging. Don't mm. worry about this fucking Vipassana <laughs> Vedic or transcendental bullshit. Let's just call it an anti-aging clinic. You just get people in. <laughs> but then we get all these vain women. <laughs> you get all these vain women in, right? <laughs> teach them how to meditate. Teach them how to fast. And uh, yeah, because I'd, I'd love to see a correlated study of people who meditated for five years but also engaged in... Uh, either regular fasting processes yeah. or, or intermittent fasting schedules, um, because you know one of the, the 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 obvious, or maybe it's not the obvious side effects, but one of the obvious side effects for me that I discovered through more through my practice, the more uh, I practice meditation, the more aware I become, the yeah. more self aware. That's, the, that's more, the whole point of the. Practice. I know, right? It's yeah. this incredible side effect. But what's interesting is that as I became more self aware, as I became more conscious, and we talk about intentionality, and we talk about sending intentions to DNA, and the impacts on DNA and, you know, for any, any skeptics out there, you've only got to go and, you know, read um, the biology belief by Bruce Lipton, you know, mm-hmm. who's a, one of the top, endo- who was a endocrinologist, I think one of the top endocrinologists or uh, cellular biologists. Yeah. And uh, he discovered that we have the ability to actually impact our DNA, to actually change our DNA, yeah. switch on, you know, specific genetic markers on and off yeah. depending on the perception or the perspective that we are holding, which is fundamentally driven by what we believe, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of then you know brings into the conversation the power of intention. You know, there's been mm-hmm. uh, numerous studies that have been done. Uh, there's a great book out there um, called, uh, well, there's a number of them, but the one that springs to mind is um, uh, what's his name, Malcolm uh, Malcolm Talbot. Um, yeah, the holographic the universe. holographic universe. Yeah, you know, there's a number of studies that I talk about in there. Um, there's a number of studies that refer to in what the bleep from different scientists, mm. where they've done these studies where they have had these either random number generators, which is just a little piece of bed of decay that is being measured for the positive and negative, um, you know, charges that are being released as it's breaking down. Yeah. And they discovered that just by placing an intention, by putting, uh, you know, five dollar an hour student with low levels of consciousness into a room with a random number generator. Mm. They were able to affect the the outcome of that um, of the result by in some cases by as much as one or two percent, mm-hmm. which you might think is well that's only small, but when you're considering that the events of that entire piece of matter to break down was about five million events, it's, it's quite considerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I've discovered through my own practice of meditation is the more conscious I become, the more intentional I become. It's almost like I've tapped into this unfair advantage 
you know, because people talk about the power of manifestation. And to me, you know, manifestation can mean a, a range of different things depending on who you ask. But there's no denying that we've all been in a situation before where we've, you know, we've placed an intention towards something happening mm. or we've thought, you know, even as low as at a low level manifestation, we've thought about someone you know, and then they've called. Have you noticed a correlation between, you know, the people who do become more conscious as a result of, you know, practicing more on a daily basis over time and the ability to bring about this almost superhuman ability yeah. to be able to create things that leave many people standing back going, how the fuck did you do that? Which is what people <laughs> say to me all the time. Like, how the fuck did you do that? Yeah. So that's exactly what the ancient Rishis were teaching. Mm. That matter was an expression of consciousness. Consciousness <sighs> is primary. And so they were always encouraging master the inner space. When you master your inner space, then you have mastery and command over the laws of nature because you're in harmony with them. And you won't violate the laws of nature ultimately and create bad karma, etc. But there's this beautiful Vedic expression that says... Do more, accomplish less. Do less, accomplish more. Do least, accomplish most. Do nothing, accomplish everything. So wow. it's looking at the yeah. power of consciousness itself Is it like with just as a mere intention that moves out, that thought form moves out and then it begins to cause the field of creation to begin to manifest or behave in certain ways. And it happens to me all the time. It happens to me just like two days ago. I was in, at, uh, up in Byron I thought, I'm going on a boat trip surfing and I really need a new surfboard. And I thought, I'm going to go to the shop and check out some new craft and I'll pick up something. I never managed to get there because I got too busy doing stuff. And then I get to Sydney and I call my friend like, oh, I didn't bring my board uh, down. Um, we should go for a surf. He said, okay, sure, I'll come pick you up. And then he turns up and he's got this brand new surfboard for me. <laughs> he goes, I just got this order. It's one of the best shapers in the world who did it. He said, uh, he shaped it the wrong size, too small for me. And I'm a little fella. So I was like, <laughs> sweet. And it's just like right then and there. You yeah. know, so... He, there's, and then I look at, you know, this big project that I'm doing in Byron. I don't know how I've managed to pull that off because all I did was think about it. Mm. And now it's this huge multi-million dollar pro pro project that we're working on and it's going to really change people's lives. I think, I step back and think, how did I do this? I didn't actually do anything, like in the physical world. And mm. we're so used to working hard on that physical plane to really feel like, oh, I'm worthy of that thing now. Whereas I think it's far more profound and artful just to use your intent. See things internally and then the world begins to bring them to you. Mm. And a lot of people would want to use a throwaway line, well, that was just a coincidence. And I, yeah. and I, I often say to people, you know, coincidence is the, is the term we use to justify, um, you know, an accidental or you know, a, yeah. a fortunate or unfortunate accident. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot of science now coming out to understand the importance of the neurology of these beliefs. Yeah. The importance of believing that we can do this mm. because obviously if you don't believe it can happen, you know, you're yeah. not going to be seeing any evidence uh, to support that. Mm. But, you know, I almost say to people, this form of magic, which is mm. what it was referred to in some cultures yeah. many eons ago, um, is in many ways strengthened by our neurology. Yeah. And the more we buy into this, and I know there's going to be skeptics out there right now who are just wincing and, you know, my advice to them is just, you know, this is not the podcast for you. Mm. Um, but the more we can focus on these things that are happening, these little, mm. these, these little events, and the more we can go, wow, I actually and own, you know, take a higher level of responsibility versus, yeah. oh, wow, that just, you know, mm. the and again, some of go, oh, the universe provided. Well, yeah, the universe provided, but you asked, you know. Yeah. It's not going to provide unless on some level that, that there's you asking. Mm. But I also don't want to also enable because there could be someone sitting on the couch right now going, oh, fucking beauty. All yeah, right. I, just I don't do have nothing. to get up. <laughs> I could just sit here yeah. and I can keep eating potato chips and I'll just think about more potato chips and hopefully yeah. they'll arrive. Yeah, so Which, my thing is this, that, 
you know, we're all a wave on the ocean of consciousness. And so that ocean of pure intelligence permeates every aspect of our being. And how awake we are and how connected and in contact with that we are will determine how powerful our minds and our consciousness is. So if we're tapped into that ocean, then we don't really have to do much. But if we're completely disconnected from it and we can just sit on the couch and have potatoes, then very little is going to happen because our thought force hasn't been enlarged. Our mind's not drawing on the deeper waters of consciousness. So having observed, you know, great rishis and sages and saints and how they operate, they don't lift a finger. They just use their intention. They cognize something internally and then it somehow permeates into the field because there's no separation and then it starts just turning up. Like I've... Kind These of, are guys that have been practicing for decades. Okay, yeah. This isn't someone who just watched The Secret, yeah. went into their living room or their bedroom and drew the blinds and was like, oh, I want yeah. a Ferrari, I want a Ferrari, I want a Ferrari. Like this, there's yeah. a very different context here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think what really starts to happen is the more awake you become, the more you realize you're here to serve. Mm. You're not here to take. You're not here to acquire or be better or what, anything like that. You realize I'm just here to serve. I'm here to enjoy the flow of human life as a spiritual being. And then once your desires are aligned with that, you become, like you were saying earlier, you be, it comes through you. So I think the more someone evolves, the more conscious they become, all they have to learn to do is become increasingly receptive because, you know, there's all those cliched expressions, you know, what you want wants you ultimately. So what can tend to happen is a desire can get hijacked by the ego or the ego can kind of come up with this grand plan of domination, et cetera, and this is going to bring success and fulfillment and prestige. And then you go on that pursuit and it's very shallow. Whereas a spiritual person, you know, when they're finding the sources working through them, then they ultimately just allow that force to conspire through them and just do as they're told. And that's how you can do nothing and accomplish everything because there's this great grander power operating through you. Mm. It's not, you know, big important you making everything happen. It's just, I'm just a... You know, part of this game, this Leela we call life. And it's interesting because, you know, some people uh, have developed this belief, you know, in some cases through religion that in order to be spiritual I can't be material. Mm. Uh, and in order for me to reach the highest levels of spirituality I, I can't have attachment or own anything. Mm. And I think you nailed it really well and I think there's a lot of philosophy um, and in some cases scripture and experience to back this up. And I've discovered this myself. And the more purpose-driven we are, the more consequential material becomes. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I haven't focused on making money for a very long time now, probably mm. for uh, consciously now, maybe 13 years. You know, I was mm. about 2005, 2006 after I sold the business that I sat on the beach. I was like, okay, what do I, what do I love to do? What do I want to give to this world? Mm. What do I want to bring to this world? And it doesn't mean I've never had ever, ever had any money stress since then. You know, even at this level now, occasionally, you know, you, you have money stresses as a result of taking big risks. But mm. one of the things that I've learned is the more I just give, the more I serve, the more I do what it is that I'm here to do, you know, mm. in this world, the more the material aspects of wealth, because there's spiritual wealth, you know, which is mm -hmm. fulfillment and happiness and, you know, that in level of enlightenment, whether it be, you know, on that pursuit of consciousness or enlightenment around that fulfillment from our relationships. But the more I give, the more my material needs are, and I mean effortlessly. And people go, well, it's not effortless, Cayman. You fucking work really hard. But I don't <laughs> feel like I'm working hard. Like yeah. I have so much love energy. What you do. Exactly. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a correlation that, that, again, many people miss 
you know, when it comes, well, I'm working so bloody hard. Why aren't I? Why aren't I wealthy? It was well, if hard work was the key to success, then a lot more people would be wealthy. Yeah, it's not about necessarily just working hard. Well, the lower class would be actually the first class. Exactly. Yeah. Boom. The lower class. I like that. Mm. But um, they work the hardest. They let's do. Face it. <laughs> they do. But again, it's not about working the hardest. It's yeah. it's about what are we bringing? Like, what is the yeah. karma? And is that what you refer to a dharma, a karma? What are we, what are we bringing to this world? Yeah, you know, dharma is basically your pl- blueprint. What nature, how nature has designed itself to express through you, and we can kind of hijack things, think it's all me. But ultimately, you know, there's a blueprint. There's a grand human design that comes from the field, and your your highest purpose can be fulfilled doing this, doing that, whatever it may be. Ultimately, it's service. Everyone's dharma is service. But there's this other thing we call I love that. like nature. You could say almighty intelligence, cosmic intelligence, that vast wisdom that governs the entire field of creation. You know, God's a very common, you know, word for it. We just like to call it nature with a capital N. So when you're living in alignment and supporting creation, you get support of nature. Mm. When you're malaligned and you're actually having a retarding or destructive effect, you get a different support of nature, the support you don't want. So you'll get, you know, obstruction, destruction, negation, you know, things won't work. So when you're really doing what nature intended you to do, that's when you can really just let it lead the way. And that's basically how I've lived my life for the past 20 years. (laughs) Just like, okay, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. And then I find like you, I have achieved... I don't know, whatever I've achieved and I think, well, it's been so easy. Mm. didn't really have to do anything and I still don't do much and still quite a lot happens. I think, well, that's, I'm pretty grateful for that but it's because the secret is really learning to become really clear in your own consciousness, aligning with that sacred source in you and just being receptive to what that's leading you to each and every moment mm. and you get to like a... Uh, a, a road and there's a left turn and a right turn, if you tune into that, you'll know which way to go. It's like that principle of Dediri, which is like a, the indigenous Australian practice of deep listening. And I think they were right onto it too. Deep meaning at the most profound level of our being, there is a message, there is a voice. And if you can exclude all of the extraneous stuff and the superficial chatter, go deep into that, deep listening will serve you it'll show you it's your it's the guide and so i think it's just deep listening we need to practice and hence why meditation you know your mind expands it goes into a much more refined plane and then you remain tapped into that in your waking state it's just when success naturally follows you mm. and if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing if you're a sensitive being like you, you can feel everything in your body if you violate a law of nature it's like stepping in a bear trap. Mm. It hurts like hell. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I shouldn't have said those words. Mm. They had a negative impact or that affected creation in a particular way. Note to self, I'll never use that word again, <laughs> whatever it may be, you know. So, Still working on that one. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you know, your, your F words might help to, you know, well, wake, wake people, people up. up. A little, yeah, yeah, but I'm still working on it, uh, especially <laughs> now with a, a four-year-old. Uh, he keeps me in line, I'll tell you that right yeah. now. But it was interesting, like even when you walked in here, you know, you were acknowledging, because you've seen, you know, obviously the time that we've known each other, you've seen yeah. the, the, the success we've created. And I said, oh, yeah, it's all happening quite quickly. And then I was like, I took a step back and I was like, well, 
fucking 20 years, but <laughs> <laughs> still in my mind, yeah. it's quite quickly. But when you have timeless awareness, what's time? Exactly. Yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, because with every interview that I've done so far, I haven't taken my watch off. And then you sit down and I take my watch off, yeah. which is, you know, because I, I, as soon as I took it off, I was like, huh. There's no. I, I was always looking, always looking for the meaning. Yeah. But you're talking about something now that we we love to talk about. In fact, we just interviewed Bill Bennett, who uh, you know he's um, won. I think it's twelve Afters. He's produced sixteen feature films, and he was this uh, investigative journalist until one day he was driving down the street uh, in New Orleans on his way to the airport, and he was speeding up to get through a light. And then little voice told him slow down. He's like, well, no, I'm running late. So he sped up, and the little voice said, no, slow down now. And he slowed right down just enough for a, a semi-trailer that went through a red light wow. in front of him. And if he hadn't have slowed down, it would have killed him. Mm. Now, this is a guy that used to work alongside Mike Willisey, Ray Martin, like mm. Four Corners, you know, very, very much a guy who scrutinises facts, scrutinises, yeah. you know, um, whatever that he's investigating. And when this happened, he was like taking notes and wow, this is profound. I want to know what was that? Where did that come from? And he's created this whole feature film called the PGS, which is the Personal Guided System uh, Around Intuition. And, you know, I've been one is I've been talking about intuition for the last probably 15 years, the last 10 years really heavily, especially since my stroke, uh, about the power of being able to tune into this, this guidance system, this, um, you know, I often refer it to is you've got God sitting on your shoulder, whatever your version of God is, uh, nature sitting on your shoulder, and he, she is constantly whispering uh, the right directions, constantly whispering yeah. the secrets of life and what you should do next and what is the right mm-hmm. thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. But oftentimes we are sitting there with this little being on our on our belt talking to us, but we're in the mosh pit of a U2 concert yeah. and we can't hear shit. Yeah. You know, there's so <laughs> much noise and we're like, what, what? I think you said what? It's like, mm-hmm. and it's, it becomes like intuition for most people is Chinese whispers. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've discovered also through the practice of meditation is the more I meditate, the more conscious, the more self-aware I become, yeah. the more this guidance system is, it's, it's no longer um, like a faint little voice. It's just this ever-present, mm. uh, for me it's not even a voice anymore, it's just a sensation. It's yeah. just like I just know what to do in that moment because mm. I just literally I check in, know what to do. And it's like, you know, I make decisions, lightning quite fast decisions with some, in some cases spins people's heads around here because, you know, mm. I might make a decision to go in a particular direction, but that... I may have only gone 20 meters in one direction before I then make a different decision, go in another direction. They go, well, you're changing mine. I said, well, no, I had to get 20, go 20 meters to discover the information required for me to then go this yeah. way. Uh, so I never get attached to my decisions. I'm always attached to my intuition. Mm. But I'm curious to know from your perspective, what is it do you think about uh, meditation that allows us to perhaps tune into greater levels of intuition and get that guidance that mm. you know, most people are desperate for but you know, very few are actually getting I think it's exactly what you said very eloquently, you know. Most people are in this mosh pit where their mind is really running the show. Yeah, right. Is overactive, very busy and preoccupied, you know, usually future building. And what needs to be present in the mind is just presence itself, just that space of being available to information streaming in at the moment it's needed. So with meditation, you know, if it's difficult with a podcast if people aren't watching this, but, you know, if you could think of like a mountain and that mountain sort of collapsing into the earth and then sort of contracting back and collapsing back into the earth. That's very much like a, the pattern of the mind. So you have this contracted mind that expands, goes back into the field, and it contracts out and it goes back into the field. And each alternation it's getting closer and closer and more at one with that field. And so your consciousness in its pure states just starts to inform you as to 
this is appropriate, this is right, this is karmically correct, this is in alignment with your heart and your dharma and and that just becomes a whole new language. Like for you, you don't even need to really think about it anymore. Mm. It's just this flow from being through to action. And because people have been cut off from being, there's no real clear flow into the mind and through the action. They're kind of running stuff against educational filters, societal sort of conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas it's really important just to blow all that stuff away and just say, okay, I'm going in touch with my deeper self and then I'm just going to live with that feeling and with that sort of flow and then that takes care of all the all the work and it'll lead you to the positive place but it'll also stop you detouring mm. and getting into the mess and, you know, because sometimes good ideas get corrupted by the ego. They go, oh, this is for me, I'm going to be famous and this and that and then before you know it they're just in the litigation or there's something going on you just think, well, what happened? It started out right but they stopped listening mm. because their own neediness took over. So I think a meditator is someone who has that capacity really just to abandon their mind form and their mind structures and just to be a deep listener and just to look at what's emerging within that moment. Mm. And that has a certain tone or a frequency to it. Like someone could sit there and go, I just got to have like that scotch now. I really just want to get that chocolate or, you know, whatever it may be, smoke a spliff. That's what we would say. That's like false charm. You know, that's a false sort of direction. Um, what addictive direction, yeah. yeah. But once you just clear away, you know, those waters that have become sullied get cleared and refined and it's pure, you can see what's there. Mm. So I think all that's happening is the individual, which is cut off and separate, is becoming in touch with the universal, uh, with the oneness. Have you looked much into neurocardiology? A heart math is something that... A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I know um, one, of, one of the guys that works at half math really well. Yeah. I found their their science quite interesting, especially the yeah. heart brain coherency. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and you know, when you start hearing the the science saying, you know, the, the heart is sending sixteen times more information to the brain, the brain is the heart. Yeah, you know, heart has a hundred thousand times the electrical charge of any other organ in the body. Mm. The only organ with sufficient electrical charge to be able to imprint mm. information on, you know, whether it be the morphogenic field or the biophotonic energy that's leaving the body, mm. has its own central nervous system, has forty thousand neurons, it stores information made of neural tissue. Mm. Um, so I'm curious to know from your discovery what the effects meditation have had on the heart. Yeah. Like, is there anything you can talk to about that? Well, I can talk about my own personal experience. So very much um, I believe as human beings we need to think holistically. You need to have good diet, good lifestyle. You need to have a sense of place and purpose. You need to be doing something that really fills your spirit. You know, you feel encouraged that you love to do. You need to have, you know, good intimate relationships and you need to exercise regularly, you need good herbal support, you need to have something which transcends you, takes you beyond your mind, your conditioning, all of that stuff. So I'd found within my own personal journey, I arrived at a point where I realised my heart isn't full, my heart isn't open or awakened and I've become so expert at just saying goodbye to the world and going into this transcended space, which was so blissful and euphoric, mm. but I also realised but I haven't developed my heart, I haven't virtue, developed the virtues and the qualities of my heart. Um, and I, I could feel it physically that I was just, I would get sort of jarred up and blocked up in this particular area. So I was doing, you know, some sort of physical work to, to remedy it. And then I was fortunate enough to have like a heart opening experience and I realised uh, my intuition was right, like this is everything. The heart is everything. And even um, Maharishi would say the same thing that, Someone said, what's all this knowledge? Because there's like spiritual practices and then there's all the philosophy and all the knowledge and the wisdom, which it's like nectar, mm. that stuff. Um, 
But one time a student said to Maharishi, what, this knowledge seems endless and what's the point of it all? And he said, well, ultimately to abandon all knowledge <laughs> and just to fall into the heart. I remember you saying yeah. You know, it's all about the, the capacity just to be inside the heart. And so I think from a Vedic perspective, they, they recognise we have two hearts. We have a physical heart, which is the one heart maths measuring, mm-hmm. but we have a spiritual heart and that dwells here, you know, in the centre of our chest. So through my meditation practice, what I found was this centre becoming a new world. You know, this is where enlightenment sits in a human being. Like there's this kind of a, there's this bound unboundedness that sits inside you and that's the opening of, the, the, you know, the blossoming of the heart. But it can get blocked can get stuck, we can feel like the, sh- the heart's not fully open or alive. So I had to do quite a lot of a lot of work around that and then got to that place where like, oh, I can really feel that agent of love in me and uh, can connect more deeply with that. But So we shouldn't think that there's only one thing a human being has to do because mm. me, you know, being so um, invested in what I was doing, like I was found, oh, I was still lacking in this area. So I had to do other practices for that pe- specific sort of need in me. And I think like all people need to open our hearts more because we live in a very heady, you know, thinking-based culture where it's, you know, in school we educate the mind only. And Aristotle said educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all actually. Mm. And how do we do that more? And that's what the Buddhists kind of encourage, that idea of compassion and love and, you know, gratitude, all those heart values. So I think there's certainly far more work people can do and that's when I believe those contemplative practices become very powerful mm. and those visualisation practices become very, very powerful and also those concentrative practices become very, very powerful because you can direct your energy to that place or you can feel, you know, the blossoming of the lotus of the heart or you can kind of see yourself being more loving and caring and ultimately being able to witness when you're not and, ah. Oh, why did I just do that or react that way or say that thing or why am I thinking like that? As a meditator, you can rise above your ordinary consciousness and be like the witness to your own behaviours and then you can mediate and then you can change. So I think the heart is ultimately what it's about. The heart math thing I believe is talking about more the apparatus but I believe yeah, the apparatus more, yeah. is enhanced through spiritual power. And again, that's where the connection lies. Um, and But for me it's just being able to tie it all together, you know, mm. understanding heart rate variability in the more... Yeah. And this is actually a literal concept. The more mm. open our heart is, mm. literally, the more our heart actually physically opens. Mm. And, you know, what we've also discovered is that the heart is receiving information. It's also sending information. Yeah. And the more the heart opens, the greater the bandwidth of information it's receiving. Because mm. a lot of people find it very difficult to go, well, how can you prove to me that intuition exists at all? How does your phone fucking work, pal? You know, how do you, <laughs> once upon a, yeah, you download the entire internet to your smartphone because once upon a time if I had told you that you can access, you know, yeah. every every written piece of information that's ever been documented in the human history and it'll be in a little device that'll be weigh like, you know, 400, 300 grams, yeah. you would have told me that I was, you know, I was an idiot. Whereas yeah. now, you know, Wi-Fi, downloading information mm. is, you know, something that we just all take for granted. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I think there's a, there's a biological connection. You mm. know, we have the ability to receive information much like our yeah. phone does. Yeah. And the more Absolutely. open we are to receive, the more information there is that, that yeah. can come about. There's two areas that I want to go to before we finish, before we wrap this up. Um, the first one is meditation and addiction. You know, I'm yeah. someone who identifies as an addict. You know, I've got addict behaviours um, mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of, you know, the things that I do. Were you once ha- an addict? Yeah, well, I, it's, that's an interesting question because, you know, 
Uh, it depends on who you ask because addiction is, is, is depending on who you ask, it's either something that you've had mm. or it's a lifelong condition. Yeah. You know, and um, I've identified in both. But were you boozing? Were you drugging? No, like, I was. Yeah. I was taking speed when I was six, uh, nineteen. So okay. I got addicted to speed for about nine months. Okay. Uh, and then I had a um, an on off relationship with cannabis in my mid twenties, my late thirties, mm-hmm. um, mid sorry early thirties. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting is when I was addicted to speed when I was nineteen. You know, I went and saw a shrink, got myself mm-hmm. clean, got myself. I didn't go. I was thankful I didn't need rehab. Um, but I did learn a lot about myself yeah. and I, I was really switched on to mm. addictive tendencies. And I've, I'm, of, I'm, a, I'm of the belief that everyone is an addict. It's a spectrum. Mm. Yeah. It just depends on where you fall on the spectrum. You know, yeah, some people totally. are addicted to food. Some people are addicted to shopping. Some people are just addicted to organising their cutlery in a particular way. And some people are addicted to the idea that they have to work. Yeah. Oh. Where, where's money is one of the greatest addictions of uh, yeah. in humanity because you look at how people behave when they run out of money. They mm. behave like a like a crack addict who's <laughs> yeah. clucking for a fix. But uh, I think for me one of the greatest things that I learned about addiction was just the the addict the addict the addictive mind and the addictive yeah. tendencies, but also the things that trigger the desire for me to um check out. Now, mm. checking out for me once upon a time was, you know, it was taking speed, then it was, you know, smoking a spliff and then for now, checking out for me is engaging in just, you know, absent behavior. Mm-hmm. It could be watching Netflix. It could mm-hmm. be, you know, engaging in destructive thoughts. You know, it could be eating something that I know is not good for me. You mm-hmm. know, as I said, it's a, it's a spectrum and yeah. it can be in a whole range of different can manifest in a whole range of different ways. But one of the things that I found really interesting is the correlation between meditation and craving. Mm-hmm. And the more I meditate, the less I crave yeah. absence. Absence yeah. of mind, mm. you know, or the, the less I crave external ways to numb, yeah, you know, exactly. whatever stress or mm. sensation is coming up for me. Yeah. Have you seen any any good data, or have you got any experience that you can share mm. about how meditation, you know, can be an incredibly either a fundamental or critical or just an important component, you know, mm. for someone who's perhaps identified addictive patterns at some point? In yeah, I think Russell practice. Brand talks a lot about it. I haven't mm. looked into his work too much, but you know, he's a meditator. He's a smart dude. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah he's electric. Um, so I think ultimately from, from a, like a Vedic psychological perspective, addictions are just reflecting that that individual, individual is wanting to experience something beyond what they presently are. And it's often a way away from or a way towards. So out of suffering or towards discovering, you know, something about themselves. Mm. So ultimately I think the basis of addictions is actually a spiritual one. People want to know what it's like to be beyond pain, dysfunction, smallness, you know, insignificance, whatever it may be. They want to experience something large and grand and euphoric. And it's just there's not, you know, we're getting, like you were saying, microwave society, we're not putting in the hard work. So then we just want to be able to light something or pop a tablet and then have a state of consciousness change. So very much the spiritual traditions were about um, developing consciousness in a particular way where it became increasingly glorified. So what... What meditation does is it's a consciousness-raising technology. And so as your consciousness begins to expand and rise or become elevated, it naturally leads to the cessation of negative behaviours, destructive kind of habits, et cetera, et cetera, because they're a pollutant. And you become super sensitive to what it's like Mm. to feel elevated, to feel grounded, to feel whole, to feel connected with your inner being. And the moment you drink that thing, smoke that thing, touch that thing, think that way, entertain that negative thought, whatever it is, you notice, oh, my whole being is being compromised. So it starts to become this self-correcting exercise, Mm. which is ultimately, you know, knowing the self and then being mindful of, oh, don't think that, don't do that, note to self. And so it's this process of personal refinement. 
So as your consciousness grows, your perception becomes elevated, your desires refine. So the whole trajectory changes based on the primacy of consciousness. When that shifts and changes, everything changes. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't change, nothing changes. Cosmetically things can change, but it won't affect the consciousness of that individual. You know, you put someone who's miserable in a two-bedroom apartment and then you put them in a mansion, they'll be happy for a week, but then they'll go back to being miserable again. So we always default back to our baseline consciousness. It's like how do we raise that baseline? And you have to, you got to, you know, do something. you got to sit and do nothing, but you have to like <laughs> put in the effort to sit do there and do, do nothing. nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, and one of the things I, I like to talk about with people, because a, a lot of people, they treat meditation like it's a diet. You know, they treat their life or their their health like it's a diet. They treat mm. their relationship like it's an event or a diet. And mm. what I mean by that is that, that microwave mentality, you know, oh, I'll do it for a couple of days and I'll see how it goes. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that I literally beat into people, you know, psychologically mm. and in some cases borderline physically is you need to make this a way of life because until mm. this becomes a way of life, this is just going to be something that you're going to try mm. that is just going to, you know, be left on the, the, the scrap heap of things that didn't work for you. Mm. And meditation is one of those things. And I've experienced yeah. this myself because I've had, you know, stints where I've gone meditated, you know, 18 months, two mm. years straight, you know, maybe missing, you know, a dozen days here and there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and you just fall off the wagon and mm. I didn't meditate for three or four months. So it happened last year and I was going through the separation with Kristen, um, who we both trained with you. Yeah. Funny, funny story though. This is really hilarious. I'll just go back there before I go forward. When I was doing your... Um, when I came in for your your induction, it mm. asked on the medical form, like, are you pregnant? And I put down yes <laughs> as a joke because I'm a guy, right? It's kind of not, not – anyway. So anyway, but what was amazing is we were actually pregnant. That was – like we were literally had been pregnant for like a week at that point and we didn't even know. And I remember yeah. looking back and going, holy shit, I knew but I didn't know. But anyway. Maybe you made it happen with the power of intention. There's every possibility because <laughs> uh, it's been the greatest the greatest event in my life so far. Mm. But um, to get back to where we were going, uh, where was I going? See, I can carry multiple <laughs> <laughs> multiple conversations about any one time about the way of life. Yeah. How do we make this a way of life yeah. so that it's not just an event-based thing? Because, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Like there, the, mm. there was last year going through the separation with Chris – uh, then I got to the end of last year and I was like, I was so exhausted. I was mm. so tired, which is when I should have been doing the most meditation. And to, to be completely yeah. fair and clear, like there were times last year as we were going through the separation, I was meditating for three and sometimes four hours a day because yeah. I was just experiencing so much pain. I was yeah. experiencing so much uh, energy come up in my body and I'd mm. do sometimes an hour and a half because I wake up at pretty early, like 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock yeah. and I'd meditate for an hour, hour and a half and then mm. I was getting an Uber into work, I'd meditate for 45 minutes in the Uber and then if mm. I had a meeting in the city, I'd, you know, I'd meditate for 30 minutes in the Uber and then 30, 40 minutes on the way home in the Uber and then I'd meditate mm. for another 40 minutes. And I honestly don't know how I would have got through it without yeah, it, exactly. to be honest, yeah. um, because it was one of the most difficult periods of my life. Yeah. But then fast forward to 18th of December, I clock out of here and I'm sliding sideways into Christmas, and then you know I I, I let I put took my foot off the the gas for I think it was like maybe five weeks five weeks I just didn't meditate mm. maybe maybe a couple of hours here and there, mm. but then I got back on the wagon and then I got back in here. But for someone like me who does this, you know, and that's not the first time that's happened to me. But for people who maybe try it for a day, three days, or six weeks, and then they have the same experience, yeah. Do you have any? Um, hacks or even just basic suggestions that we can use so yeah. that it becomes more of a way of it life. So it's, 
effortless rather than effortful. Yeah. So, I mean, if someone comes and learns VM with me or one of the other teachers, they'll find that there's a very simple way to get into the zone each day. Um, you just start to set it as something you do at the outset of the day and then you do it somewhere towards the latter part of the day once your work's sort of wound up. And it takes about 28 days to fix a habit. So if someone can just sort of have a non-negotiable attitude for a series of weeks, then it's embedded as part of something that is just like the landscape of their life, like brushing your teeth twice a day, having three meals or, in, you know, in your case probably one. You one know. meal a day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, or shaving or people putting on makeup or having a morning coffee. Like these are just unconscious acts after a while. Yeah. So it just becomes something that you find yourself implementing without having to be too militant about it. It's just, oh, I do this now. And the thing that you start to notice once your nervous system and you have normalised to the chemistry of that and the feeling of that and the energetic state you enter into, to deprive yourself of that feels terribly toxic. Mm. In the bloodstream you notice there's stress hormones, you feel mm -hmm. tense in your system, your mind's not so sharp and clear and you might feel in your heart you're a little bit sort of tense or whatever it may be. You can feel the influx of anxiety starting to, you know, right. echo away and things like that and people realise, oh, that's right, God, I meditated for a few days. So the thing I've noticed through through the process of teaching is that when people hit crisis or they hit times of like more acute stress, there's that tendency for them to drop away from their practice. Mm. That's when you really got to use your higher mind and go, no, I'm overriding the thing it. that says I don't have time and I need to panic and worry about all this stuff. It's actually the worst thing you can do. Mm. And it's just basically the chemistry in the body that's distracting the brain saying we need to like focus on all these problems now. We don't have time and focusing on problem will never actually bring a solution. So the more we can just sort of transcend and withdraw, then you notice you just become more functional. Yeah. So I think people just need to commit a little bit. They need to find something that actually is effective because if you're doing something, you know, I remember being in a dentist surgery once and he said, what do you do? You're pretty calm under the knife. And I'm like, oh, I meditate. He goes, oh, I learned to do that. He said, oh, yeah, we, I learned last weekend and we had to like look at 10 raisins for tw like 20 minutes. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Oh, hey, you poor bastard. Oh, my God. How you much know? did you pay for that? God. Yeah, I don't, he, yeah, I don't know. He probably, like, got ripped off even if he got it for free, you know. because Special bonus, yeah. ten, 10 raisins you can eat afterwards. You yeah. know, and you can think, oh, you know, there was once, a, you know, in a field in France growing on a vine that was, you know, 200 years old that had been cultivated with love and the soil's, like, composition is this. and So you can go on that sort of story. But meditation should take you beyond thinking. Mm. You shouldn't, like, strengthen the, the tendency to think. So I think, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing something that you feel a physiological re response from. Mm. And if you're learning or practicing VM, for example, and you're not noticing effect, it's because you're doing it wrong. Like, for example, um, one of my clients came and saw me yesterday and he, he's, uh, he didn't learn with me. He learned with another teacher, but anyway, that's why I'm more confident telling the story. <laughs> uh, he said, look, I said, how's your, how's your meditation going? He goes, oh, man, it's hard. You know, I, I, I don't like it. I'm, I'm, I think I've, I've been kind of going between, you know, the guided stuff and, you know, doing VM and I was like, okay, tell me more. And then basically as it turned out, he was doing the practice completely incorrectly. You know, it was what we talked about initially, like he was focusing, trying, straining, attempting to make his mind quiet, trying to, you know, focus on silence and keeping thoughts at bay and just doing everything completely wrong. And so I aligned his practice and he's like, he was like falling asleep like in moments, like he's just all his fatigue was rushing out of his system and he was accessing, accessing mm. deep meditation. But it's the methodology that's so important. 
And, and uh, let's touch on that quickly because I've had people say this as well. Um, you know, every time I try to meditate, I'm falling asleep. And I'm like, well, that's actually fatigue leaving your body. Exactly. That's, you're actually giving your, your body time to, to release. So yeah. can you talk to that super quickly? Like when people experience that, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's positive. It means their nervous system's in this state of hyperarousal. The coffee, the adrenaline and the determined mind's keeping them trucking on. Yeah. But if you actually switch them out of that sympathetic drive for a few moments, the body's going to go, man, this is how I actually feel. <laughs> You've been pushing me way too hard mm. and I'm darn tired. Mm. And it starts to kind of reveal that in the meditation. And that won't go on forever but if someone's falling asleep, it's obviously like revealing, well, there's just fatigue. Mm. There's a sleep deficit and your body's now just reclaiming that deficit and, and returning, you know, the tank to being, you know, full rather than thriving on empty. And it's so interesting because um, the only time I ever have sleep problems is when I'm not meditating. Yeah. When I meditate, I have no sleep. Like yeah. even like I think it was like uh, early last year before I started the the, the heavy practice again, uh, I was having so much trouble with my sleep. wasn't mm. meditating at the time. I even went and did a yeah. sleep study. Yeah. Uh, and then I came back and they're like, oh, you know, well, you got to do this, this and this. And I was like, I'm just going to start meditating. I started meditating again within two days. Yeah. Sleeping like a baby. Yeah, um, totally. But I'm, I'm going to give a suggestion for those people playing at home and, and it may not be the best suggestion but one of the things that I find gets me into my meditation routine when I fall mm-hmm. out, I've got a friend in the US, Chris Farrell, and whenever he's a, he's a, he's a VMer as well mm-hmm. and whenever I want to get myself back in, I always said to him, let's do a 30-day challenge. Mm. Whereby we'll do a meditation in the morning, meditation in the afternoon and we both have to message each other once mm. the meditation is done. And I, Chris, I, I hope you don't mind me saying this. I always kick his ass because I'm yeah. a competitive guy. <laughs> but it's, it's what works for me. Yeah. But without fail, every time, you know, it mm. gets me back into that pattern. 30 days of meditation and then I'm good for months. Mm. But, uh, but Gary, mate, this has been the longest podcast we've done so far uh, while we've been in Sydney anyway. Uh, it's been an absolute honour and an absolute pleasure. For people who want to find out where they can find out more about Gary Goro and Vedic Meditation, the VM man, where can they find out more about you? Just on my website, GaryGoro.com. GaryGoro.com. So you've, you've trained not just myself, but you've trained celebrities, movie stars, the whole kit and caboodle, CEOs, yeah. entrepreneurs, but you also train everyday people as well. You're, yeah. And you're an incredible guy. You're living out in Byron Bay now as well. Yeah, I'm in Sydney every two weeks. I'm yeah, working with a, an AFL team down here and a few other people, so I'm always back and forth. And that's the thing. It's important for people. To, this is such a performance hack. Yeah. This is a performance hack. This is an anti-aging hack. Uh, and if you can get you, because again, we've all got to look for the reasons why we do mm. things. Yeah. And I think sometimes people go, oh, meditation, oh, maybe I'll, I might get a few benefits. No, 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 your performance, your sleep, mm. your everything. Uh, apparently even your sex gets better as well, Timmy. So um, <laughs> that's that's the rumour. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute honour having Gary Goro. Thanks for being here, pal. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Till we meet again. Indeed. <laughs> there you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say and your reviews. Make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray. 